0: Hello, I'm Byron Reese. I am the host of Voices in AI. If you're interested in the topics we discuss in these podcasts, I'd urge you to check out my newest book. It's called The Fourth Age. It's about conscious computers and artificial intelligence and the future of work and jobs and all of the topics we cover here on Voices in AI. It comes out uh, next spring, but you can pre-order it now on Amazon or wherever else you order books from. This is Voices in AI, brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, our guest is Peter Lee. He is a computer scientist and corporate vice president at Microsoft Research. He leads Microsoft's new experiences and technologies organization, or Next, with the mission to create research-powered technology and products and advance human knowledge through research. Prior to Microsoft, Dr. Lee held positions in both government and academia, At DARPA, he founded a division focused on R&D programs in computing and related areas. Welcome to the show, Peter.
1: Uh, Thank you. Uh, It's uh, great to be here.
0: I always like to start with a seemingly simple question, which turns out not to be quite so simple. What is artificial intelligence?
1: Wow, that that is not a simple question at all. (laughs) You know, I guess, um, you know, the simple uh, One-line answer is: artificial intelligence is the science or the study of intelligent machines. And I realize that definition is pretty circular, and I, I'm guessing that you understand uh, that that's a fundamental difficulty because it leaves off uh, or leaves uh, open the, the question: what is intelligence? And um, you know, I think people have a lot of different ways to think about what is intelligence, um, but I think. In our world, uh, intelligence is you know, how do we compute uh, how to set and achieve goals in the world. Um, and, uh, and this is fundamentally uh, what we're all after right now in AI.
0: That's really fascinating because you're right. There is no consensus definition on intelligence or on life or on death for that matter. And so I would ask that question. Why do you think we have such a hard time defining what intelligence is?
1: You know that's uh, I, I think we only have one model of intelligence uh, which is our own, uh, and so you know when you think about trying to define intelligence it really uh, comes down to a question of defining you know, who we are, and you know there's fundamental discomfort with that, but that kind of fundamental circularity is 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 difficult you know if we were able to you know, fly off in some starship uh, to a far-off place and find, you know, a, a, di- a different form of intelligence or you know, different species uh, with something that we would recognize as intelligent. Maybe we'd have a chance to dispassionately uh, study that and and come to some conclusions. Uh, but it's it's hard when uh, when you're looking at something so introspective. You know, when you get into computer science research, uh, at least here at Microsoft Research. Um, You do have to find ways to focus on specific problems. And so we end up focusing our research on AI and our tech development in AI, uh, roughly speaking, in four broad categories. Um, And I think these categories are a little bit easier to grapple with. Uh, One is perception. And that's giving machines, endowing machines with the ability to see and hear, uh, much like we do. Uh, a second category is learning how to get machines to get better with experience. Um, the third is reasoning you know, so how do you make inferences logical inferences, common sense inferences about the world and then the fourth is language you know, uh, how do we get machines to be intelligent in interacting with each other and with us uh, through through language so those four buckets perception learning reasoning and language uh, at least uh, they don't define what is intelligence but they at least give us some kind of clear set of goals and directions to go after
0: well I'm not going to spend too much time down in those weeds but I, th- I think it's really interesting so in what sense do you think it's artificial because it's either artificial in that it's just mechanical or that's just a shorthand we use for that or it's artificial in that it's not really intelligence because you're using words like see hear and reason and i don't know if you're using those euphemistically can a computer really see or hear anything or can it reason or are you using them literally
1: yeah you know it's it's funny we don't uh, you know the the question you're asking really gets to the nub of things because uh, we really don't know. And if you were to draw the Venn diagram, so you have a big circle, a big bubble, and call that intelligence, and now you want to draw the circle of artificial intelligence, we don't know if that circle is the same as the intelligence circle, uh, whether it's separate but overlapping, whether it's a subset of intelligence. Uh, these are really basic questions that we you know, we debate um, and people have different intuitions about, but, but we don't really know. Um, and then we get to what's actually happening, you know, what gets us excited and what is actually making it out into the real world, doing real things. Um, and for the most part, that has been uh, a tiny subset of these big ideas, um, you know, just focusing on machine learning, on, on learning from large amounts of data models that are actually able to you know, uh, do some useful task, you know, a useful task like recognize images
0: right right and, and I, I definitely want to go deep into that in just a minute but i'm curious if you think that so there's a wide range of views about ai should we fear it should we love it will it take us into a new world, will it, uh, you know, a new golden age, will it, will it do this, it, will it cap out? Is an AGI possible? Are are we only, all of these questions, do you think the wide range of beliefs, because if you ask, how will we get to Mars, we can kind of all, you know, we don't know exactly, but we kind of know. But if you ask, what's AI going to be like in 50 years, it's all over the map. And do you think that is because there isn't agreement on the kinds of questions I'm asking? Like people have different ideas on those questions or are the questions I'm answering, asking not really even germane to the day-to-day, um, you know, get up and, and start building something?
1: You know, I think there's kind of um, a lot of debate about this because the question is so important. You know, every, every technology is double-edged. Every technology has the ability to be used for both good purposes and for bad purposes. Uh, It has good consequences and unintended consequences. Um, And what's interesting about computing technologies generally, but especially something as powerful, a powerful concept like artificial intelligence, is uh, that in contrast to other powerful technologies, let's say in the biological sciences or in Nuclear engineering, or uh, you know, in, uh, in kind of transportation and so on. The thing about AI is it has the potential to be highly democratized, to be codified into tools and technologies that literally every person on the planet can have access to. And so the question becomes really important you know, what kind of outcomes? What kinds of possibilities happen for this world when literally every person on the planet can have the power of intelligent machines <clears throat> at their fingertips? And so the, all of the questions you're asking end up, because of that, becoming extremely large uh, and extremely important for us. And, and so people care uh, about those features, but. Uh, Ultimately, right now, our state of scientific knowledge is we don't really know. You know, um, I I sometimes talk uh, in analogy about the way, way back in the medieval times when Gutenberg uh, invented uh, movable type, mass produced movable type, and the first printing press. And Europe in that period went in a period of just 50 years from 30,000 books in all of Europe to almost 13 million books in all of Europe. It was sort of the first technological Moore's law. And the kind of spread of knowledge uh, that that represented uh, did amazing things for humanity. It really democratized access to books and therefore to a form of knowledge. Uh, But it was also incredibly disruptive uh, in in its time and and has been since. And in, in a way, the potential we see with AI uh, is very similar and maybe even a bigger inflection point for humanity. And so while I can't pretend to have really any hard answers to the basic questions that you're asking uh, about the limits of AI um, and the nature of intelligence, uh, uh, it's for sure important and I think a good thing that that people are asking these questions and are thinking hard about
0: it. Well, I'm just going to ask you one more, and then I I want to kind of get more to the down in the nitty gritty. Do you think it's a settled question? So if the only intelligent thing we know of in the universe, so the only general intelligence is our brain, do you think it's a settled question that that functionality can be reproduced mechanically?
1: You know, uh, I I, I, I think there is no evidence to the contrary. And so, uh, you know, every way that we look at, uh, what we do in our brains, um, uh, we see mechanical systems. And, and so in principle, uh, if we have enough understanding of how our own mechanical system of the brain works, um, then, then we should uh, be able to re- at the minimum reproduce that. Um, now of course the way that technology develops, we, we tend to build things, uh, you know, in different ways, and so I, I think it's very likely that the kind of intelligence, uh, intelligent machines that we end up building will be different uh, than our own intelligence. Uh, but there's no evidence, at least so far, uh, that would be contrary to the thesis that uh, that we c- can reproduce intelligence mechanically.
0: So to say, to, to take the opposite position for a moment, somebody could say there's absolutely no evidence to suggest that we can for the following reasons one uh we don't know how the brain works we don't know how thoughts are encoded we don't know how thoughts are retrieved aside from that we don't know how the mind works we don't know how it is that we have capabilities that seem to to be beyond what a hunk of matter gray matter could do we're creative and we have a sense of humor and all these other things And and we're conscious, and we don't even have a language, a scientific language for understanding what consciousness, how consciousness could come about. We don't even know how to ask that question or look for that answer scientifically. So somebody else might look at it and say, there's no reason whatsoever to believe we can reproduce it mechanically.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, (laughs) uh, I'm going to uh, use a quote here from, of all people, a non-technologist, Samuel Goldwyn. Uh, the old movie magnate, uh, it, it, but I, and I always reach for this when when I get put in a corner like you're doing to me right now, <laughs> um, which is um, it's absolutely impossible, but it has possibilities. All right. And, you know, you know, and I you know, I think uh, you know we our current understanding is that brains are fundamentally closed systems, um, and so you know, we're we're learning more and more, and in fact, what we learn is loosely inspiring uh, some of the things we're doing in our AI systems um, and, and making progress. Uh, how far that goes, uh, it's, it's really, as you say, it's unclear because there's so many mysteries, but so, um, it, it sure looks like there are a, a lot of possibilities.
0: So now to get kind of down to the uh, nitty gritty, and let's talk about like difficulties and where we're being successful and where we're not. My first question is why do you think AI is so hard? It's Because humans kind of acquire their intelligence seemingly simply, right? You know, you put a little kid in play school and, you know, you show them some red and you show them the number three. And then all of a sudden they understand what three red things are. And then, I mean, you know, we, we kind of become intelligent so naturally and yet we are, we, and yet, my frequent flyer, you know, program that I call in can't tell when I'm telling it my number if I said eight or H, you know. And and so, why do you think it's so hard?
1: Well, you know, one thing to point out, uh, I think uh, what you said is true. Although it it took you many years uh, to to kind of reach that point, and um, and even a child, you know, is, uh, that that's able to do the kinds of things. Uh, that you just expressed has had you know years really of of life. um and And so the kinds of expectations that we have at least today, especially in the commercial sphere for our intelligent machines, um, sometimes uh, there's a little bit less patience. But having said that, I think what you're you're saying is right. we're We're roughly speaking, if you think about, you know, what is really getting people excited. You know, I mentioned before this Venn diagram. So this is big circle, which is intelligence. And let's just assume that there's some large subset of that, which is artificial intelligence. Then you zoom way, way in and a tiny little bubble inside that AI bubble is machine learning. Now this is just simply machines that get better with experience. And and then a tiny bubble inside that tiny bubble uh, is machine learning from data, you know, where the models that are extracted that kind of codify what has been learned uh, are all extracted from analyzing large and large amounts of data. And that's really where we're at today. So we're in this tiny bubble inside this tiny bubble inside this thing called this big bubble called artificial intelligence. And, you know, what is remarkable is that despite how narrow our understanding is, you know, that f- for the most part, all of the exciting progress is just inside this little, tiny, narrow idea of machine learning from data. Uh, and there's even a smaller bubble inside that, machine learning from data in uh, what's called a supervised manner. Uh, even that, we're just seeing tremendous power, you know, just tremendous ability uh, to kind of create new computing systems that do some pretty impressive and some pretty valuable uh, things. And, and so it's pretty crazy just how valuable that's become to companies like Microsoft. At the same time, it is such a narrow little slice of what we understand uh, of intelligence. And so the kinds of simple examples that you mentioned, for example, one problem that you've sort of touched on is one-shot learning you can show you know a small child a cartoon picture of um, a fire truck Uh, and if that child has never seen a fire truck before in their life you can then after showing her that little uh, cartoon picture take her out on the street and the first real fire truck you know that goes down the road the child will instantly recognize as a fire truck that sort of one shot idea, you're right. um our current systems uh, aren't aren't good at, and so you know while we are so excited about how much and uh, progress we're making on learning from data, uh, there's all the other things that we think of that are wrapped up in that uh, that are wrapped up intelligence that are still pretty mysterious to us and and pretty limited. And and sometimes you know when that matters, um, our limits get in the way, and and it uh, you know creates this idea that AI is actually still really hard.
0: So you're you're I guess talking about transfer learning, and would you say that the reason she can do that is because at another time she saw a drawing of a banana and then a banana, and another time she saw a drawing of a cat and a cat, and so it wasn 't really a one shot deal, like do, how do you think transfer learning works in humans because we, that seems to be what we 're super good at is we can take something that we learned in, in one place if, and, and you know find find in this picture the Statue of Liberty covered in peanut butter, and you know I can pick that out with uh, having never seen you know a statue of liberty in peanut butter or anything like that. <laughs> um, so I can do that. And do you think that's a simple trick we don't understand how to do yet? Or is that like, like that's what you want it to be, like a aha br- uh-huh moment where, oh, here's, here's, here's the basic idea. Or do you think it's a hundred tiny little hacks that, you know, we're, our, we're, transfer learning in our minds is just like some spaghetti code written by some, you know, drunken uh, programmer uh, <laughs> who was on a deadline, right? And are, so what do you think that is? Is it a simple thing or is it a really like convoluted, complicated thing?
1: You know, it's uh, transfer learning. It turns out to be incredibly uh, interesting scientifically and also commercially for Microsoft turns out to be uh, something that we rely on uh, in our business. And, 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 you know, what is kind of uh, interesting then is, uh, you know, when is transfer learning you know, more generally applicable versus being very brittle? So, so uh, first of all, just to get to transfer learning. So, for example, in our speech processing systems, the, the actual commercial speech processing systems that Microsoft provides, uh, we use transfer learning routinely. Um, you know, when we train our speech systems to understand English speech, um, and then we Train those same systems to understand Portuguese or Mandarin or Italian, uh, we get a transfer learning effect where the training for that second and third and fourth language uh, requires less data and less computing power. And at the same time, each subsequent language that we add on to improves the earlier languages. So, training that English based system to understand Portuguese actually improves the performance of our speech systems on English. And so there are transfer learning effects there. Um, In our image uh, recognition uh, tasks, there is something called the uh, ImageNet competition uh, that we participate in um, most years. And the last time that uh, we uh, competed was two years ago in 2015. Uh, There are five image uh, processing uh, categories. We trained our system to do well on category one on the basic image classification. And then we use transfer learning to not only win the first category, but to win all four other ImageNet competitions. And, and so without any further kind of specialized training, uh, there was a transfer learning effect. And so transfer learning actually does seem to happen. And it, in our kind of deep neural net, deep learning uh, kinds of uh, research activities, transfer learning effects, when we see them, uh, it's just really intoxicating. It, it makes you think about uh, what you and I do as human beings. Uh, at the same time, you know, it's, it it just seems to be this brittle thing. We you know we don't necessarily understand when and how this transfer learning effect is effective. Um, and the kind of early evidence uh, from kind of studying these things is that there are different forms uh, of learning. You know, that somehow the kind of one-shot ideas uh, that, you know, even small children are very good at uh, seem to be out of the purview of the kind of deep neural net systems that we're working on right now. So, so even this sort of intuitive idea that you've expressed of transfer learning uh, the fact that we see it in some cases and that it works so well and is even commercially valuable uh, to us uh, but then we also see even simple transfer learning tasks uh, where these systems just seem to fail uh, even those things are kind of mysterious uh, to us right now
0: it seems and I don't, I don't have any evidence to support this but it seems in two, it, it seems at like a gut level to me that maybe what you're describing isn't pure transfer learning in the sense that what you're saying is we built a system that's really good at uh, translating languages and it works on a lot of different languages. What, what it seems to me that is the essence of transfer learning is when you take it to a different discipline. Because, because I, I learned a second language, I am now a better artist. Because I learned a second language, I am now a better cook. That That somehow we take things that are in a discipline and, and they, they somehow add to this, to this richness and depth and indimensionality and, and of our knowledge in a way that they really impact our relationships. Um, you know, I was chatting with somebody the other day who, who said that learning a uh, second language was the most valuable thing he'd ever done and that his personality in that second language is different than his English personality. And so I wonder if it's, I hear what you're saying and I think those are those are hints that point us in the right direction but I wonder if at its core it's really multi-dimensional in in what humans do and that's why we can seemingly do the one-shot things because we're taking things that are absolutely unrelated to drawings of cartoon drawings of something relating to real life. Do you have even any kind of a gut reaction to that?
1: Yeah, you know, I, one thing, at least, uh, in our current understanding of the research fields, is there is a difference between learning and reasoning. And you know, um, and you know, the example I like to go to is, um, you know, we've done quite a bit of work on language understanding, and uh, in specifically in something called machine reading, you know, where you want to be able to read text and then answer questions about the text. And a classic place where you uh, uh, look to test your machine reading capabilities is um, uh, parts of the uh, verbal uh, part of the SAT exam. And the nice thing about the SAT exam is uh, you can uh, try to answer the questions and you can measure the progress, you know, just through the score that you get on the test. Um, and And so that's, steadily improving, and not just uh, here at Microsoft Research, but uh, uh, quite a few uh, great university research areas and centers, subject those same systems to, say, the California third grade achievement test, uh, and the, the intelligence systems just fall apart. Uh, there are, you know, If you look at what third graders are expected to be able to do, uh, there's a level of common-sense reasoning that's Seems to be beyond what we try to do in our uh, machine reading uh, uh, system. So, for example, one common kind of question you'll get on the third grade achievement test is maybe uh, f- four cartoon drawings: a drawing of uh, a ball on grass, you know, sitting on the grass, uh, some raindrops, an umbrella, and a puppy dog. And now you want to know, you know, which pairs of things go together and third graders are expected to be able to make the right logical inferences the right life experiences the right common sense reasoning inferences and put those two pairs together uh, but we don't actually have ai systems that uh, reliably are able to do that and so that common sense reasoning is something that seems to be at least today with the state of today's scientific and technological knowledge uh, outside of the realm of machine learning it's it's not something that we think machine learning will ultimately be effective at and and so that distinction is important to us even commercially. you know I'm looking at an email uh, today um, that someone here at Microsoft sent me uh, to get ready to talk to you today, and so the email says uh, it's right in front of me here. Uh, here is the briefing doc uh, for tomorrow morning's podcast. if you want to review it tonight, I'll print it for you tomorrow well. Uh, Right now, the system has underlined, uh, want to review tonight. And the reason it's underlined that is it's somehow made the logical common sense inference uh, that I might want a reminder on my calendar uh, to review the briefing document. But it's remarkable that it's managed to do that because there are references to tomorrow morning uh, as well as tonight. And so making those sorts of kind of common sense inferences uh, doing that reasoning uh, is still just incredibly hard um, and, and, and really still requiring a lot of craftsmanship by a lot of smart researchers uh, to, to, to make real.
0: It's interesting because you say, you had just one line in there, that solving the third grade problem isn't a machine learning task. So how, how would we solve that? Or put another way, I I often ask these, these Turing test looking systems, my my first question is always, what's bigger, a nickel or the sun? And none of them have ever been able to answer it. And so, (laughs) um, because, you know, sun is ambiguous, maybe, and nickel is ambiguous. And in any case, um, if we don't use machine learning for those, what? how How do we kind of get to the third grade, or do we not even worry about the third grade? What we just want to do is build systems uh, because most of the problems we have in life aren't third grade problems they're they're you know twelfth grade problems that we really want the machines to be able to do. We want them to be able to translate documents not not match puppies to pictures of puppies.
1: Well, for sure, you know, if you just look at what companies like Microsoft uh, and the whole tech industry is doing right now, uh, we're all seeing, I think, at least a decade of incredible value to people in the world uh, with just with machine learning. You know, there, there are just tremendous possibilities there. And so I think we're we're going to be very focused on machine learning and it's going to matter a lot. It's going to make people's lives better and it's going to you know, really provide a lot of commercial uh, opportunities for companies like Microsoft. But uh, that doesn't mean that common sense reasoning uh, isn't crucial, isn't really important. You know, it, almost any kind of task that you might want help with, now even simple things you know, like um, you know, making travel arrangements, uh, shopping, um, or, you know, bigger issues like uh, getting medical advice, uh, advice about, um, you know, your own education. Uh, all of these things almost always involve some elements of what you would call common sense reasoning, making inferences about, uh, you know, that that somehow, uh, you know, are not common you know, that are very particular and specific uh, to you uh, and maybe you know, haven't been seen before in exactly that way. Now, uh, having said that, you know, in the scientific community, in, in our research and amongst our researchers, there's a lot of debate about you know, how much of that kind of reasoning capability could be captured by uh, you know, uh, through machine learning. Uh, and how much of it could be captured simply by observing what people do for long enough um, and, and then, then just learning from it. But you know, for, for me, at least, uh, I, I see what is likely is that there's a different kind of science that we'll need to really develop much further if we want to capture that kind of common sense reasoning. Uh, just to give you a sense of the debate... Uh, one thing that we've been doing, it's been an experiment ongoing in China, is uh, we have a new kind of chatbot technology in China uh, that takes the form of of a person uh, named Xiao Ice. And Xiao Ice is a persona that lives on social media in China and actually has a large number of followers, tens of millions of followers. And, you know, typically when we think about chatbots and intelligent agents here in the US market, uh, things like Cortana or Siri or Google Assistant or Alexa, uh, we put a lot of kind of semantic understanding. We really want the chatbot to understand what you're saying at a semantic level. For Shell Ice, we ran a different experiment. And instead of trying to put that level of understanding, semantic understanding, we instead, looked at what people say on social media. And we use natural language processing to pick out statement response pairs and templatize them and put them in a large database. And so now, if you say something to Eyes in China, uh, Sha- the Eyes chatbot looks at what other people say in response to an utterance like that, and maybe you'll come up with 100 likely responses based on what other people have done. And then we use machine learning to rank, order those likely responses, uh, uh, trying to optimize the sort of enjoyment and engagement in the conversation, Uh, optimize the likelihood that the human being engaged in the conversation will stick with the conversation. And over time, Ice has become extremely, extremely effective at doing that. In fact, For the top, say, 20 million people who interact with ShowEyes on a daily basis, uh, the conversations are taking more than 23 turns. And what's remarkable about that, and uh, fuels a debate about what's important in AI and what's important in intelligence, is that at least the core of ShowEyes really doesn't have any understanding at all about what you're talking about. Uh, It's, in a way, just very intelligently mimicking uh, what other people do in, conver- in successful conversations, and um, and so it kind of raises the question: you know, really, when we're talking about machines and in, and machines that at least appear to be intelligent, you know, what's really important? Uh, is it really a purely mechanical syntactic system uh, like we're experimenting with in Chinese, or is it something that where we want to and kind of codify and encode The kind of our semantic understanding of the world and the way it works, the way we're doing, say, with Cortana. And these are fundamental debates uh, in AI. Uh, What's sort of cool, at least in my day-to-day work here at Microsoft, is we are in a position where we're able and allowed to do fundamental research in these things, but also build and deploy very large experiments just Mm -hmm. to see what happens and, and to try to learn from that. So it's pretty cool. I, uh, uh, at the same time, um, uh, I can't say that it leaves me with clear answers yet, not yet, Uh, just leaves me with great experiences um, and we're sharing what we're learning with the world, but uh, it's much, much harder uh, to then say definitively, you know, uh, what these things mean.
0: You know, it's true. In 1950, Alan Turing said, can a machine think? And it's still a question that I, I think we don't maybe we don't agree on because people don't necessarily agree on those uh terms but but you're right that that chatbot could pass the turing test in theory Uh, 23 turns if you didn't tell somebody it was a chatbot maybe it, it, it would pass it but you're right that that's somehow unsatisfying that that is somehow this big milestone that because if you saw it as a user in slow motion that you ask a question and then it did a query and then it pulled back a hundred things and it ranked ordered them and then it looked for how many of those had successful follow-ups and thumbs up and smiley faces. And, and then it gave you one, it, 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 it would, it, it's that whole thing about like, once you know how it works, the, the magic trick isn't nearly as interesting.
1: It's true. And with respect to say, achieving goals or completing tasks in the world uh, with uh the help of the the XiaoEyes chatbot? Well, in some cases, it's pretty amazing how helpful Ice is to people. If someone says, um, you know, I'm in the market for a new smartphone, I'm I'm looking for a larger phablet, but I still want it to fit in my purse. Ice is amazingly effective at giving you a great answer to that question, because it's something that a lot of people talk about when they're shopping for a new phone. At the same time, Ice might not be, uh, you know, so good at uh, helping you decide, you know, which, uh, you know, uh, you know, which hotels to stay in, uh, uh, helping you arrange maybe uh, uh, your next vacation. Uh, it might provide some guidance, um, but you know, maybe not um, exactly the right guidance that's been well thought out. One, one more thing to say about this is, you know, today, at least at the kind of scale and kind of practicality that we're talking about, for the most part, we're learning from data. And that data is essentially the digital exhaust from human thought and activity. And so there's also another sense in which AI, ice while it passes the Turing test, it's also in some ways limited uh, by human intelligence, because almost everything it's able to do, it has observed and learned from what other people have done. And so we can't discount the possibility of future systems that are less data dependent uh, and are able to just understand the structure of the world and the problem and learn from that.
0: Right. I guess Chalice wouldn't know the difference, what's bigger, a nickel or the sign? right?
1: Uh, that's right. Yes. <laughs> Um, unless uh unless so i
0: yeah unless unless the transcript of this very uh uh conversation were somehow part of the training set but you notice i've never answered it i've never like given the answer away which is bigger so uh it still it still wouldn't know what do you let's talk about you know, sh- uh, go ahead
1: we we should try that uh, we uh, we should try that experiment at some point <laughs>
0: Um, what do you think about, why do you think we personify these AIs and do you think, because you know about Weizenbaum and Eliza and all of that, I assume that, you know, he, he got deeply disturbed when people were relating to a lie, knowing it was a chatbot, he got deeply concerned that people poured out their heart to it. And he, he said that when the machine says, I understand, it's just a lie that there's no I and there's nothing that understands anything that. Do you think this somehow confuses relationships with with people and that 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 there are there are unintended consequences to the personification of these technologies that we don't necessarily kind of know about yet
1: you know i I'm always uh internally scolding myself for falling into this sort of uh tendency to anthropomorphize uh our machine learning, and AI systems. Uh, but I, I'm not alone. Even the most hardened, uh, kind of grounded researcher and scientist uh, does this. I, I I think this is something that is really at the heart of what it means to be human, you know, that a fundamental fascination that we have and and drive to, to kind of propagate uh, our species uh, is kind of, surfaced as a fascination, uh, with, uh, with building autonomous intelligent beings. Um, and it's not just AI, but it goes back to, you know, the Frankenstein, uh, kinds of stories that have just come up in different guises and different forms throughout really all of human history. I, you know, I think we just have a tremendous drive, to build machines or other objects and beings that somehow capture and codify and therefore promulgate uh, what it means to be human. And nothing defines that more for us than than some sort of codification of human intelligence, and especially human intelligence that is able to be autonomous, make its own decisions, uh, make its own choices uh, moving forward. It's just something that is so primal in, in all of us. And so even in AI research, where we really try to train ourselves and be disciplined about not uh, making too many connections, unfounded connections, to biological systems, uh, we fall into the language of, of uh, biological intelligence all the time. Um, even you know, the four categories I mentioned at the outset of our conversation, perception, learning, reasoning, language, you know, these are, these are pretty kind of biologically inspired words. And, um, and and, I I just think it's just a, just a very, very deep part of human nature.
0: That that could well be the case. I, I have a, I have a book coming out on, um, on AI that kind of talks about these questions, uh, in next, in April of 2018. And there's a whole chapter about how long we've been doing this and you're right. It goes back to, uh, the Greeks and, um, the, the, the Eagle that allegedly plucked out Prometheus's liver every day. Mm-hmm. And some accounts was an autonomous, was a, was a robot. There's um, I mean, there's just tons of them. The difference of course now is that up until, uh, a few years ago it was all fiction. And so these were just stories. But then the question is, you know, we don't necessarily want to build everything that we that we can write about that we can imagine in fiction. And and I I, I still wrestle with with it that um somehow we are going to convolute uh humans and machines in a way which might be to the detriment of humans and not to the ennobling of the machines. But Time will tell. Um, let's talk about machine you know, learning. Every,
1: every,
0: you know. Go ahead. Sure, go ahead.
1: Oh, you know, every
0: technology
1: is, is a, as we discussed earlier, is double-edged. And, you know, what I think is positive and important, just to strike an optimistic note uh, to your to your last comment, which is, I think, very important. Um, you know, I, I do think that this is an area now where where people are really thinking hard about the Kinds of issues he just raised. And, um, you know, and I think that's in contrast to uh, what was happening in computer science and the tech industry even just a decade ago, you know, where more or less there was an ethos of technology is good and more technology is better. You know, I think now there's much more enlightenment about this. Um, I, you know, I think we can't impede the progress of science and of uh, technology development um, but you know what I think is so good and so important is that uh, that at least uh, as a society we're, we're really trying to be thoughtful about uh, both the the potential for good uh, as well as the potential for bad uh, that comes out of all of us and uh, so I think that gives us uh, gives us a much better chance that, that we'll get more of the good.
0: I, I would agree I would agree I mean and I think the only other corollary to this where there's been so much philosophical discussion about the implications of the technology um, you'd have to look to the harnessing of the atom and the, if you read the contemporary literature people at the time were like you know it could be energy too cheap to meter or it could be weapons of colossal destruction and or it could be both and so there was there was a precedent there for uh, a long and thoughtful discussion about the implications of the technology and so uh it, it, i think it it's funny what- you mentioned
1: that yeah um because that that uh reminds me of another favorite quote uh of mine which is of, uh from albert einstein um, and i'm sure you're familiar with this the the difference between stupidity and genius is that genius has its limits <laughs> Oh, that's good <laughs> and and of course and of course he said that you know, at the same time that a lot of this was developing and um And, you know, understanding it it was a pithy way to kind of tell the scientific community and the world that that we need to be thoughtful and careful. And um, and I think we're doing that today. That's emerging very much so in in the field of AI.
0: So talk to me. There's a lot of concern or practical concern about the effect of automation on employment and these technologies on employment. Do you have uh, an opinion on how that's all going to unfold well for for sure th-
1: there's going to be i think very likely massive disruptions in in you know how the world works you know i uh, i mentioned the printing press the gutenberg press and movable type uh, you know there was incredible disruption there um, you know when you have nine doublings in the kind of spread of books and printing presses in the period of 50 years. You know, that's a real medieval Moore's law. And if you think about the disruptive effect of that, you know, by the early 1500s, the whole notion of what it means to educate your children uh, suddenly involved uh, making sure that they could read and write. And, you know, that's a skill that takes a lot of expense and years of formal training. And it has this sort of disruptive impact. So while the overall impact on the world and society uh, was uh, hugely positive, you know, really the printing press laid the foundation for an age of enlightenment and the Renaissance. Uh, it you know, had an absolutely disruptive effect on you know, on what it means and what it takes for people to succeed in the world. And so AI, I'm pretty sure is going to have the same kind of disruptive effect because it has the same sort of democratizing force uh, that the spread of books has had. And, And so, you know, for us, we've been trying very hard to keep a focus on what can we do to put AI in the hands of people that really empowers them and augments what they're able to do? You know, what are the codifications of AI technologies that enable people to be more successful in, in whatever they're pursuing in life? Um, and that focus, uh, you know, that intent by uh, our research labs and by our company, I I think is incredibly important um, because it's sort of, puts a lot of the inventive and innovative genius that we have access to uh, and and tries to point it in the right right direction.
0: So talk to me about some of the um, interesting work you're doing uh, right now. I mean, start with the healthcare stuff. What can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, healthcare is just incredibly, incredibly interesting. You know, and I, I think um, there are maybe three areas where I'm, that just really get me excited. You know, one is just in the fundamental life sciences, um, uh, where we're seeing some amazing opportunities and insights being un- unlocked uh, through the use of machine learning, large-scale machine learning, and data analytics on the data that's being produced uh, increasingly cheaply uh, through, say, gene sequencing uh, and through our ability to measure signals in the brain. Um, and the, what's sort of interesting about these things is that you know over and over again in other areas, if you put great uh, innovative research minds and machine learning experts together with data and computing infrastructure, uh, you get this sort of burst of of um, unplanned and uh, unexpected innovations. And right now in healthcare, we're just getting to the point where we're able to arrange the world in such a way that we're able to get really interesting health data uh, into the hands of of these innovators. And uh, genomics is one, one area that's super interesting there. Then there is the basic thing about what happens in the day-to-day lives of doctors and nurses. You know, today, doctors are spending an average, there were several recent studies about this, an average of 108 minutes a day, just entering health data into electronic health record systems. Now, this is just an incredible burden uh, on those doctors, and it's very important because it's managed to digitize uh, people's health histories. Um, But we're now seeing amazing ability for intelligent machines to just watch and listen to the conversation that goes on between the doctor and the patient and to dramatically reduce the burden of all of that record keeping on doctors so doctors can stop being clerks and record keepers and instead actually start to engage more personally with their patients and then the third area which i am very excited about but maybe is a little more geeky is You know, how can we create a system, how can we create a cloud where more data is open to more innovators, you know, where great researchers at universities, uh, great innovators at startups who really want to make a difference in health, you know, can we provide a platform and a cloud where we can supply them with access to lots of valuable data so they can innovate, they can create models that do amazing things. Um, and um, and so those those three things just all really get me excited because of the combination of these things I think can really uh, make the lives of doctors and nurses and other clinicians better, uh, can really lead to new diagnostics and therapeutic technologies, uh, and uh, sort of unleash the potential of great minds and innovators. Um, it just uh, you know stepping back uh, for a minute it really just amounts to creating systems that allow innovators, data, and computing infrastructure to all come together in one place. Um, and then just having the faith that when you do that, great things will happen. And, and healthcare is just a, just a huge, huge opportunity area for, for doing this that I've just become really passionate about.
0: I guess we will reach a point where you can have essentially the very best doctor in the world in your smartphone and the very best psychologist and the very best physical therapist and the very best everything. Right. Um, All, all, you know, available at, at essentially no cost. I guess the internet always provided at some abstract level, all of that information, if you had an infinite amount of time and patience to find it. And I guess the promise of AI and the kinds of things you're doing is that it it there was a difference. What did you say between learning and um, reasoning that it, that it kind of bridges yeah. that gap and, and makes it. So paint me a picture of what you think just in the healthcare arena, the world of tomorrow, like the thing that gets you excited. Tell me what that world looks like.
1: You know, and you know, I, I don't actually see healthcare ever getting away from being a, an essentially a human to human activity. Uh, there's something very important. In fact, I, I predict that healthcare will still be largely a local activity where you know, it's something that you will you know, fundamentally access from another person uh, in your locality. And there are lots of reasons for this, but there's something that is so personal about healthcare that, uh, that it, it ends up being based on relationships. And so I, I see AI in the future instead relieving... Kind of senseless and mundane burden uh, from the heroes in healthcare, you know, to the doctors and nurses and administrators and so on that, uh, you know, that provide that sort of personal service. So, for example, uh, we've been experimenting with a number of healthcare organizations uh, with our bot, chatbot technology. And that chatbot technology is able to answer on demand through a conversation uh, with a patient, uh, routine and mundane questions about some health issue that comes up, Uh, do the kind of mundane textbook triage, um, and then once all of that is uh, done, then make an intelligent connection to a local healthcare provider, summarize very efficiently for the healthcare provider uh, what's going on, and then really allow the full creative potential and attention of the healthcare provider uh, to be put to good use. Uh, Another thing that we'll be uh, showing off to the world at a major radiology conference uh, next week is uh, the use of computer vision to learn, and machine learning, to learn the, the kind of habits and tricks of the trade Uh, for radiologists that are doing radiation therapy planning. And right now, radiation therapy planning involves kind of a pixel-by-pixel kind of clicking on uh, radiological images that is extremely important. It has to be done precisely, but also has some artistry. You know, every good radiologist has his or her kind of uh, different kind of approaches to this. Um, And so one nice thing about Machine learning based computer vision today is that you can actually observe and learn uh, what radiologists do and their practices, and then dramatically accelerate and relieve a lot of the mundane effort so that instead of two hours of work uh, that is largely uh, mundane with only maybe 15 minutes of that being very creative, we can automate uh, the kind of non creative aspects of this and allow the radiologist to devote that full 15 minutes or even half an hour to really thinking through uh, the kind of creative aspects of the radiology. And so you know, it's more of an empowerment model rather than replacing uh, you know, those healthcare workers. Uh, it still relies on sort of human intuition, still relies on human creativity, um, but hopefully allows more of that intuition, more of that creativity, to be harnessed uh, by taking away some of the mundane and time-consuming aspects of things. And, um, and these are uh, kind of approaches that somehow uh, I, I view as very human-focused, um, very humane ways to uh, not just make healthcare workers more productive, but to make them happier and more satisfied in what they do every day. And, uh, and unlocking that uh, with AI is just something that I feel is incredibly, uh, incredibly important. And it's not just us here at Microsoft that are thinking this way. I, I'm, I'm seeing some really enlightened work uh, going on, uh, especially with some of our academic uh, collaborators uh, in, in this way. Uh, it, I find it truly inspiring to see what, what might be possible. So, so I, I basically, I'm pushing back on the idea that we'll be able to replace doctors Replace nurses. Um, I don't think that's the world that we want, and I don't even know that that's the right idea. I don't think that that necessarily leads to better healthcare. But to be clear,
0: to be clear, I mean, I'm talking about the great immense parts of the world where there aren't enough doctors for people, where you know, there's this vast shortage of medical professionals to, to somehow fill that gap. Surely, the technology can do that.
1: Yes, um, I think access is great. You know, um, even with some of the health chatbot uh, pilot deployments that we've been experimenting with right now, uh, you can just see that potential. You know, if, you know, if people are living in parts of the world where they uh, have access issues, you know, it's, it's an amazing and empowering thing to be able to just send a message to chatbot that's always available and ready to listen and answer questions. And you know those sorts of things for sure uh, can make a big difference. Um, at the same time, you know, the real payoff is when technologies like that then enable or you know kind of clear the decks enough uh, for healthcare workers, for really great doctors, really great clinicians. Uh, clear enough off their plate um, that they become, that their creative potential becomes available uh, to more people. And so, you know, you win on both ends, you win both on sort of that instant access through automation, uh, but you can also have the potential to win by uh, expanding and enhancing the kind of throughput and the amount of, of uh, the number of patients uh, that, that clinics and and clinicians can uh, can deal with, and um, and so it's it's sort of uh, kind of a win win situation in that respect.
0: Well said. Well said. No, I, I I agree. So, but it sounds like overall you are bullish on the future. You're optimistic about the future, and you think this technology overall is a force for great good. Or am I just projecting that onto you?
1: <laughs> you know, we. Uh, I have to say we think uh, a lot about this. Um, and, you know, I would say in, in my own career, you know, I've had to confront uh, both the good and bad outcomes, uh, both the positive and unintended consequences of technology. You know, I remember when I was back at DARPA. I uh, arrived at DARPA in 2009. And in the summer of 2009, there was uh, uh, an election in Iran, Uh, where um, the people in Iran felt that the results were not valid. And so this sparked what has been called the Iranian Twitter revolution. And what was interesting about the Iranian Twitter revolution is that people were using uh, social media, Friendster and Twitter, in order to protest uh, the results of this election and to organize uh, protests. Um, And... This came to my attention at DARPA through the State Department because um, it became apparent that US developed technologies to detect cyber intrusions and to help protect corporate networks were being used by the Iranian regime to hunt down and prosecute people who are using social media to organize these protests. And so uh, the U.S. took very quick steps to stop the sale of these technologies. But the thing that was important is that these technologies, I'm, I'm pretty sure, were developed only with the best of intentions in mind to help make computer networks safer. And so the idea that these technologies could be used to suppress free speech and freedom of assembly uh, was, I'm sure, never contemplated. And this really kind of highlights the sort of double-edged nature of technology. Um, and so, for sure, that thoughtfulness we try to bring into every single research project uh, we have across Microsoft Research. Uh, and that motivates uh, our participation in things like the partnership on AI uh, that involves a, a large number of industry and academic players because we want always to have the technology industry and the research world to be more and more thoughtful and enlightened, uh, on these ideas. So yes, we're optimistic. I'm optimistic, uh, certainly about the future. Um, but that optimism I think is founded on uh, a good dose of reality that, you know, if, if we don't actually take proactive steps to, to be enlightened on both the good and bad possibilities, good and bad outcomes, um, you know, then, you know, it doesn't, the good things don't just happen on their own automatically. And so, so it's something that we work at, I guess, is, is the bottom line of what I'm trying to say.
0: All right. It's earned well, optimism. <laughs> I like that. Earned optimism. I like that. Uh, this is pro- where it looks like we're um, out of time though. I want to thank you for, uh, for, for an hour of fascinating conversation about all of these topics.
1: It was uh, it was really fascinating and um, uh, you've asked some of the hardest questions uh, of the day. It was a challenge and just tons of fun to to noodle on them with you.
0: Like what is bigger, the sun or a nickel? It turns out that's a very hard question.
1: <laughs> All right, Peter, um, you, you know, have a... I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to ask you how I said question and I'll let you know what she says.
0: All right. <laughs> Thank you again. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, I host another podcast about artificial intelligence. It's a daily podcast called the AI Minute. And every day, it's a minute or two of reflections about artificial intelligence. It's available wherever you find your podcasts of choice. But in addition, it's an Alexa skill, so it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.